With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Breber and alongside me is Logan Camden and we have got lots of great basketball to talk about today. We're going to preview both conference finals matchups, but first we have to start with the disastrous Game 7 performance that we saw from Philly Logan. Yet another disappointment from, to me, the two biggest playoff underperformers of this generation, James Harden and Joel Embiid. What did you take away from this for them? I just think we have to start about how disappointing it was. And I think the biggest thing that makes this kind of sad, really disappointing, is the fact that both of their legacies were on the line in this series. This is arguably... After all this turmoil, like you said, this is the big storyline about both of these guys. They're playoff letdowns. They shrink in the spotlight. In the biggest moments, they just don't show up. That's why this game was so important for them. It's possibly the last time that James Harden is going to have a shot maybe at winning a title because we've seen a a steady decrease from him over these past few years. Uh, For Joel Embiid, who has not been healthy in certain playoff uh, uh, matchups. He hasn't performed up to expectation in playoff matchups. This is the time for them to correct those uh, those narratives. This is their time to erase them. Harden can get over that hump, finally get to the Eastern Conference Finals again, chase that final ring potentially. Embiid, he's a big-time playoff performer. He can show up, and they completely shrunk. They completely shrunk under the spotlight. They completely disappeared uh, in this big game. And I thought it was funny. I mean, during that one stretch of the game, you've got some of the Anthony Melton threes. You've got Daniel House chucking up shots. This is where James Harden and Embiid, I mean, you feel the game. You feel the momentum just completely spinning out of control. You're losing all control you have on this game, and they just defer. It's really disappointing, and from both of them. I thought we saw some real flaws in Joel Embiid's game that weren't really prevalent in these earlier series, how dependent he is on that post fadeaway and how dependent he is on that jump shot falling, how he doesn't really like to get uber-physical and super physical on the low block, how double teams can really affect him. He had some bad turnovers when they were sending doubles at him, and he's just not making either the right decision or he's not picking up on the double fast enough. Uh, I think I want to give Embiid a lot of credit for taking the pain away, as he did all series long, blocking shots, completely stifling the Celtics when they went there. But I think you see a lot of his shortcomings as a versatile, switchable defender, you know, a la the Bam Adebayos. Tatum was abusing that switch on Embiid throughout the game, and... Embiid just doesn't look comfortable out there. So I think we saw some real shortcomings in Embiid's game. And then we just saw, I'm not going to say I'm surprised about Harden. (laughs) This is kind of the Harden that we expected. He had two really big games in this series. And that's something that I think we have to criticize Joel Embiid for uh, is a big time in this series. Any of their wins, I mean, he wasn't the best player on the floor. You know, I mean, like definitively. Harden pulled his weight in those two games, and they eke out both of those wins. It just never felt like we saw Embiid at a real MVP level uh, throughout this entire series. Like, he felt just like an average superstar. And it's just it's just really disappointing, man. Both of these guys, this is going to be their legacy, Carson. I don't really see 
I don't see Harden ever getting any better. I think this is a stain on Doc Rivers' resume as well. And I think a lot of people are going to blame this solely on Doc. I think that's something that we have to get away from. We have to criticize Embiid. We have to criticize Harden. It is as much on their shoulders as it is on Doc Rivers' shoulders. But I do think, I think Doc's probably out of town too uh, after this season. But yeah, I mean, this is as big of a stain uh, to have somebody show you up like that, like Tatum to 50-piece you, and neither of you look like you want the ball, you're ready for the moment. Uh, it's it's kind of what we should have expected. You know, I'm almost I'm almost disappointed that I was as hard on Boston as I was coming into this game, Carson. I talked about Boston potentially disappearing under the spotlights. Harden and Embiid have consistently showed us that this is what they do in the biggest games. And that's why it's so funny that it suddenly seems like everybody's coming to this realization, Logan. Like, you put Joel Embiid at number eight in your player rankings ahead of the playoffs one time, and everybody loses their minds, you know? That's what I did because... There's an established precedent with Embiid of his game completely falling off, like, significantly in the playoffs. And there are very concrete reasons for that, some of which you addressed, but I just want to really iterate how much this is not a one-time thing, how we should not be surprised by this, because since 2018, Joel Embiid in the regular season has been a 28, 11 half, 3.5 guy on 53.5% effective field goal percentage. In the playoffs, in that same span, which is since his first postseason, 24 a night, four-point-per-game decrease, 11-3 on 49.1% effective field goal percentage, 28% from three, with nearly a full turnover more than assists per game. And I think there are three primary things that have worn him down, and this is exactly what I addressed in that rant long ago, but a lot of you guys may be new to the show, so I want to hit on it again. Number one. His limitations as an actual shot maker. Everybody talks about his reliance on getting the line, which he is still great at in the playoffs. I mean, he is like the best foul-drawing big man that we've seen. And I'm not talking about Shaq, Wilt. These guys could eat up more attempts, but that's because of pure physical dominance, right? Embiid is getting guys to reach. He's getting guys to bite on fakes, finding them out of position, all that. And some of that translates, but as we know, it's not enough. Like each of the last two postseasons, he goes down two and a half free throw attempts per game. It's the same thing that has really hindered Harden a lot of times in the playoffs. You have to be a great shot maker. You are not going to win playoff series by just tricking your way to the line. And this season, he was a nearly 46% jump shooter. He was 33% from deep. These playoffs, 33% on jumpers. 18% from deep, and that is a majority of his offense. If it's out of pick and pop, we talked about Boston playing that deep drop while Embiid was getting fed looks out of that. If it's his face-up game out of the post, his back-to-the-basket game, you mentioned the turnarounds. Like He is a jump shooter, and he is a jump shooter whose jump shot has consistently left him in the playoffs. Last year, he was 34% on jumpers, and so you look at the overall trend the league average effective field goal percentage since 2018 in the playoffs is 52.5. Joan Lambeez is 49. This year it was 44.8. So to be significantly below average efficiency as a shot maker, you are never going to be a great playoff performer. This is why I said a few weeks ago, I think Jokic is a better playoff scorer than Joel Embiid. Because he is a better shot maker, because his floaters, his hooks, his jumper out of pick and pop, out of the post, doesn't go away. Consistently elite efficiency. Embiid has been the exact opposite, and that's going to kill you. And in a matchup like this against Al Horford, when he finds himself with a really good one-on-one -on -one defender who's got active hands, constantly affecting that jumper, who is disciplined but physical, right? He's not just going to bully him to his spots easily, and he's also not going to eat up those free throw attempts. He has real problems. And then you added on to that the fact that, yeah, he has an inability to read double teams at a high level. It was remarkable to me how much people acted like he was dissecting that Brooklyn defense because game one, they created a lot of open threes. He was solid in that game. But games two and three, Brooklyn was able to limit him to 17 points per game. He had 13 turnovers to nine assists. And the team offensive rating was under 109, which is almost a 10-point drop-off from the regular season because you can affect him off the catch when you're throwing aggressive doubles at him, right? Sometimes he struggles with the catch. You can cause him to lose his handle when he's going against the double. He's just not sharp enough there. He's going to commit more offensive fouls with that pressure on him, especially against smaller lineups where guys can sell that contact a bit more. Length can affect his passing. And for the most part, he's just not going to make the best possible pass in any scenario. Like, yeah, 
He may get the defense in rotation, but it's going to be, okay, who's the nearest open guy? Well, I'm just going to swing it to him, and then, okay, someone's able to recover to him, so now he's got to swing it to another shooter, right? Which can create good shots, but... When you're comparing that to the prospect of, oh my God, regular season Joel Embiid who's going to give me 33 a night with blazing efficiency, yeah, you'll take him just sort of throwing it out of a double and maybe resetting the offense, maybe creating a slight advantage. So it happened again this year. Like 3.9 turnovers to 2.7 assists per game. Eight of his 11 career playoff series, more turnovers than assists. And it was more prevalent in the Brooklyn series when all they were doing was throwing doubles at him. But still in this series, you saw him struggle with double teams. That is a real limitation when you're supposed to be an offensive hub, an offensive superstar. And then it's his overall physical condition. Injuries, obviously. And this year, he's playing through the knee injury, right? So maybe he is 10 15% worse than what you would normally expect or hope to see from a fully healthy Joel Embiid. But there comes a point where if that is an inevitability, it's not an excuse. Like, you can't talk to me about healthy Joel Embiid if he doesn't exist in the playoffs. I'm sorry, I just don't buy that. Every time they have been to the second round, he has missed at least one playoff game. That's five for five. So that is obviously a major problem. And also, I feel like when you talk about physical condition, you mentioned how great he was as a rim protector in this series, and it was the best rim protection that I think we've seen from him on the playoff stage. I mean, almost three blocks a game in this run. Fantastic. But it also felt to me like the more he exerted himself defensively, the more he was prone to stagnating the offense, to settling offensively. And that's why it's like, great. People talked about his defensive dominance throughout these playoffs. It's awesome. It's great. But when you're giving me 23 a night on subpar efficiency with terrible playmaking, I really don't care. You're supposed to be a top five player on the planet. You were the MVP. People were saying he was the best player alive. And so you can't have this trade-off where it's maybe I do this better, but I'm not going to excel at the thing that makes me so great in the regular season. So I've said it before. I think he has more to prove on the playoff stage than any other guy in the superstar tier. James Harden is the biggest playoff underperformer of all time to me, but it's just not a surprise when you see it from him. But Joel Embiid's history, Logan, in elimination series, we can go through every single one. He has underperformed dramatically. Last year versus the Heat, right, he had the orbital fracture. But he was under 20 a night. He was 43% from the field, 26% from three, more turnovers than assists. 2021, they lost to the Hawks, one of the most embarrassing talent deficit upsets in recent years. 2020, put up his raw numbers against the Celtics, but he had three times as many turnovers as assists. He was 48% effective field goal percentage, inefficient again. And they got swept. 2019 versus the Raptors. Under 18 a night. 37% shooting. More turnovers than assists. Jimmy was way better than him. He was the reason they were in that series. And then 2018 versus the Celtics. 23 a night. 44% from the field. 24% from three. Of course, I think he's a better player than he was in those first couple years. I think he's the best version he's ever been. But the things that were supposed to be the key improvements. His shot making. As a jump shooter. His playmaking. His ability to read those double teams. And to actually create offense for others. Those completely fell apart like they always have in the playoffs, as did his health. So the discourse went to a crazy place this year, man. I had somebody in our TikTok comment section when I said that Embiid was the number eight guy for me heading into the playoffs, saying that I was putting Shaq with a lethal jumper at number eight. Like, this, I think, was a telling moment for Embiid, and he still has to really improve in these categories before I'm putting him as a top five player in the league. I mean, he just hasn't shown on the playoff stage that he can even reliably be a number one. You're number ones in the playoffs, guys. It's like during the regular season, the Sixers formula, right? Embiid has to get that 33 to get them wins. Embiid has consistently been below that. And I think another limitation too, Carson, that you didn't bring up, you think about how Jokic can bait guys and how he has all these fakes and all these uh, just – he's got a deep bag. Like Embiid doesn't have counters. He doesn't have setups. He doesn't have – it's – consistently settling for stuff throughout. And I think those are all areas he has to get better in before. I think we should even legitimately consider a team that he's leading as to be legitimate contenders. Like that's something that is going to continue to happen. Anytime Embiid is in the playoffs, he's going to get swarmed. He is going to get double teamed. What happens when you throw a double team at Nikola Jokic? He finds the right guy every time and he's going to burn you every time. Now, I'm not trying to just apples to apples compare the two, but that's the thing. It's like, there are no limitations with Jokic, right? There's just, he has a counter for everything you do. If you overcommit to something or if you bite on a pump fake, he's going to hit that touch shot. If you send a double at him, he's going to find that guy in the corner. There's just ways to stop Joel Embiid 
the way you can't stop other superstars. I I don't know what you do from here moving on. Like, I don't know how you get another superstar that's a number two with James Harden. And like I said, I think the big thing is, until Embiid proves that he can do this on the playoff stage, he's not a number one. This is not the performance of a number one. It's not the performance of an MVP guy, let alone a number one superstar guy. I mean, I think you're right. Would you have Embiid, where you ranked him in your playoff performers, I think that's a really good ranking. But after this, would you rank Embiid even lower now? I feel pretty good about that. I think that Anthony Davis I had below him because I had questions about his availability, his offensive consistency. I would move AD above him now because I think he's in a different stratosphere. Uh, defensively, obviously, and offensively, his game translates. But I think that I would also probably move LeBron below Embiid. I was a big believer in LeBron still maybe reaching a top five player ceiling. I don't think he's done that consistently enough to justify it. Obviously, he was great in game six, but he's able to benefit from a situation in which he has a lot of secondary creation. He does have Anthony Davis. Like, if it was, hey, LeBron, carry a team to the finals again, I don't think he's capable of that. Not that Embiid is. But yeah, he's in that tier, right? He's not in the Jokic, Steph, Giannis Mm -hmm. tier. And I think that this showed that. But I do think the reality is also that James Harden embarrassed himself yet again. And yeah, I mean, he had two awesome games, two signature Harden games. But you know what he averaged in playoff losses this year, this series, Logan? 12.5 points per game on 21.5% from the field, 13% from deep. Like, he has major issues that continue to reveal themselves, and the biggest one that we talked about throughout is his inability to score inside at this age, his inability to explode past people and to finish against length. So the guy goes 19 of 61 inside of 8 feet in these playoffs. That's 31%. And yeah, he had like the best mid-range shooting run of his playoff career, which was fun. But he is so singularly reliant on that pull-up jumper that when it's not there, he is a zero as a scorer. And it's just unfortunate that he was never able to put his entire game offensively together on the playoff stage because in the previous years, we saw his lack of versatility, his predictability, right? The heavy reliance on, all right, step back threes, let me get to the line, maybe get to my floater range. And when his three-point shot left him for the better part of his Houston years, he consistently saw a drop-off in efficiency from beyond the arc. And when I think his body just wore down a bit overall due to that style. And again, in a best-of-seven series... You have to have variety. You have to have counters. You have to have that level of versatility and unpredictability to consistently attack a defense with maximum effectiveness, and Harden never had that. And now he's just a shell of the player he once was. I know that he feels that he's the same guy, but I think they have to move on from Harden. I don't think he's a reliable enough perimeter creator because they need a great perimeter creator. And people talk about Dame. I mean, that would be great getting Dame to Philly, right? Then maybe they could be a legit contender because all of a sudden Embiid doesn't have to be your best offensive player for you to win playoff series. But how do they make that happen when they don't have draft capital? I mean, they've given up their first in 23, 25, and 27, so there's no maneuverability there. You move Tobias Harris in his big contract, but like you need the carrot to dangle with that. He's not an asset. He's a negative given just the size of that contract. But... I want to see them go all in for this year because you still have rookie deal Tyrese Maxey, which is an incredible value contract. Maxey's a star. And don't talk to me about trading Maxey for like a star right now because that would really piss me off. But I don't know what they throw in there with Tobias Harris that makes people lick their lips and say, great, let's make something happen. But I do think Harden's gone. I think he's going to go to Houston and I think he's going to, you know, enjoy the old spots, if you know what I mean. And that'll be that. I don't know how you bring him back, but I also don't know what the fix is. So it just remains a problematic situation in Philly and rife with disappointment as it's been for a half decade. They have not once overachieved in the playoffs, nor has Joel Embiid, nor has James Harden. Nor is Doc Rivers. I I mean, like, I think that's the other big part of this is it's so funny to me, man. And it it does make me mad that, again, I predicted that this was going to be such a close game seven because all three of these people... James Harden, Joel Embiid, Doc Rivers have consistently let us down on the playoff stage. And Doc in this run, I think back especially to this Game 7, the third quarter run that we have where the Celtics just take over, there is not a one timeout spent by Doc Rivers right there that's thinking, oh, let's limit this run. And I think the biggest issue was Jason Tatum continues to kill them, right? It's not like when you see your stars pick apart the same coverage, the same thing that you're throwing at them, you're going to switch some stuff up. 
Tatum is just eating on it. They get that Joel Embiid switch throughout the third quarter. They get it throughout the game. And yet, here is Doc. And, I mean, you heard him in, I think, one of the huddles, Carson. He goes, "We're not. let's not do anything different. We just need to play hard. I don't know, Doc. Let's switch something up, maybe. Let's run a different coverage. Let's burn a timeout. Let's rally the stars and get on them. You know, like, I, hey, guys, we can't really settle for, uh, we can't have Melton and House taking over the offense right now. I need you guys to take over something. And throughout Doc's years, there have been a lack of adjustments, a lack of good coaching decisions, and a lack of, like, motivation, man. I think I saw it on Doc's face during this game. It was like, <laughs> just like a look of desperation, of sadness, that he knows this is the way he's going out during that third quarter run. You see it on his face. Um, I'm disappointed in him, too, just the fact that, especially in Game 7, you don't burn the timeout, but the lack of adjustments when Tatum was on in this game really disappointed me. I'm not letting him beat switch out there as much. I'm doing something to get him back. I'm making an adjustment because Tatum was consistently killing this team out of that switch. And I am I am interested, though. Like, why do you think that... Why do you think Harden's... Why is he gone? Why are you so sure of that? Just with the rumors? Just with the situation? Why are you so certain that he's out of town? Because there was talk that he wanted to go to Houston and the regular season seemingly real talk, and then he had a legitimately embarrassing final two games to lead to another embarrassing playoff loss for the Sixers. And I just don't think that he's going to justify a big long-term extension Mm -hmm. in his mid-30s as I don't know where you want to put him in the regular season. Like, obviously, he was in that All-NBA conversation, but I just don't think he's a top-20 player I want for the playoffs, and I don't want to be attached to him long-term. So do you think he's just giving up on getting a ring or even chasing that, or he just doesn't care? What contender wants to give James Harden a massive contract right now? I don't think that guy's out there. And I do think that Doc is gone because I think that we are now in scapegoat central. And I will say, I mean, we did see them throw a couple different coverages at Tatum, right? We saw drop. We saw them switching Embiid, which to me is stupid. I mean, I don't know why that's the adjustment you go to. We did see them blitz a little bit but Tatum was just unbelievable in this game I don't know if they were going to take away Tatum so I blame Doc certainly the least out of all of the like big names here I think Harden and Embiid sucked I think that is what this comes down to bottom line that being said I do think with this pattern of playoff disappointment with Doc's overall reputation he is probably gone and I'm fine with that I don't think Doc is a particularly good NBA coach but I also don't want to look at this and say he's the one at fault here because this comes down to your superstars when your superstars get outplayed like this obviously in this game but also in the home stretch of game six it's on them and I know that there was the Embiid quote circulating about how me and James can't win alone that's why basketball is five on five and that quote was a bit better within the context because it got clipped off in a way that was a bit unfair to Embiid but before that he talks about hey this is on us we have to be better nevertheless Though, I mean, this really is about you, Joel, and James. You let your team down. Tobias Harris played fine. Tyrese Maxey had a couple of massive games in this series. Your supporting cast, the Meltons and the Paul Reeds of the world, and even the Nyangs of the world busted their asses, and you sucked. And I'm not going to expect everybody to be perfect and oppressor, but a guy who does have a tendency to be a bit arrogant, and obviously all of the MVP talk this year was pretty absurd. The whole extended quote about why is there any pressure on me? And that's just his persona, right? He's a cocky guy. But you got to own it even more than that because this is on you. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. 
you'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Definitively. Okay, so Boston is through Logan, rematch with Miami. Three of the last four years, this has been the Eastern Conference Finals that we've gotten. What's the first key that stands out to you in that series? I think there's a lot of keys. My first is just how Boston is going to defend Jimmy Butler. I I think that's probably the first area I go. I think they're really well equipped with Tatum and Jalen Brown, but... uh, it didn't really matter what the Knicks threw at Jimmy. It didn't really matter what Milwaukee threw. I thought Milwaukee should have tried different things with Giannis. But Jimmy has been able to get to his spots. He's been able to uh, just at will relentlessly kind of get to where he wants to go. And I, I think Boston's really well equipped to defend anybody. But I don't think that Boston has a distinct advantage in the defensive category either because it's like I've been expecting Miami to get out-hustled, to get out-worked this entire run. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Miami's been the hungriest team in these playoffs this entire time. Uh, They led in deflections. They led in loose balls recovered. They've led in all the hustle categories. They've consistently rebounded well against teams that they shouldn't rebound well against. So I think that in the hustle categories, I think Miami's going to be really, is going to do really well. But like I said, I think it's going to come down to a lot of how the stars play. And that's Tatum, what version of him we get. I'm so proud of Tatum because when, you know, he answered the call. Well, I mean, the pressure's on, and we know how fast media moves these days. One bad game, and that's what happens. Two bad games, oh, you're getting thrown down the trash chute. Three bad games, they're burning the trash up, and Tatum was getting burned up by the media, as he should. It was three really bad first quarters. It was three abysmal first halves. He was still very effective, but he answered the call. He's, I'm humbly one of the best basketball players on the planet, and he proved that. I mean, the most points in a game seven Again, the thing that we have consistently said here is that what separates great superstars from other great superstars is the consistency at which they're able to do it, right? Joel Embiid certainly looked like one of the best players on the planet and the MVP of the league in a few games, right? Maybe one or two. But it's the superstars that can do it every single night is what we value more. That's why Nikola Jokic, I think, you have to give him such credit. So for Tatum, we just need to see it consistently and it's hard it's always hard when a guy with Tatum's skill set when he's so predicated on the pull-up jump shooting on the tough shot making that shot can disappear if it's not on but you see when he gets in rhythm when he hits that first one it's that easy so I need to just see Tatum be more on and I guess I want to see Tatum be more aggressive Carson when that shot isn't falling because I think it's going to be inevitable I think Tatum's going to have great nights when the shot is falling when he is on and nothing can miss but I also think there's going to be games and he's proven that he can still be effective without his shot falling, but we need to see better Tatum. I think we need to see the Celtics lean into Jalen Brown more too, just with the ball in his hands late in games. I want to see him get more PT down the stretch. I want them to be more involved in the offense. What I really think it's going to come down to, and this is a boring answer, Carson, for both of these teams, I think a lot of it is going to be predicated on jump shooting. Um, These are two very jump shot dependent teams that are really good in the drive and kick at attacking closeouts at getting downhill and then kicking it to shooters. We saw the Celtics, I noted this in this last series, struggled with wide open threes, struggled with open threes point blank. 
and I think that's where a lot of shots are going to come from. You have two teams that are pretty good at protecting the paint. Bam Adebayo, Al Horford, Robert Williams, all on the low block. They're going to be good at taking the paint away, which means a lot of shots are going to come from behind the arc. We know what Miami likes to do with the pick and roll. You get a screener with your guy up top. So I think it's going to come down to shooting. Can the Celtics hit open shots, and then can Miami... One, what is Boston going to do against the pick and roll? I think they need to either switch everything because you can... And you have a bunch of switchable, versatile pieces that aren't going to burn you. I don't mind even switching a, a smaller guy on Bam at a bio because, look, Bam's a good offensive piece when he's on, but it's not like I'm going to expect him to kill me from the low block. Uh, Miami's going to pull a lot of threes out of that pick and roll, and they are looking to create a lot of those threes. I think it is going to come down to, I don't know, a lot of those things, how the star plays, how Jimmy, JB, and Tatum do. But these teams shoot a lot of threes every single night. These are two of the most frequent three-point shooting teams in these playoffs. Boston has consistently shot poorly. Miami has been inconsistent night to night. So I'm interested in seeing how all those pieces shoot, how they defend it. But I think we're going to see a lot of threes in this series, Carson. I think it is going to be very three-point dependent and who can knock down more open looks, who can hustle more, and who can get back. I do think this is going to be a, a real tight-knit series, though, man. I, I've counted Miami out. I'm not ready to do that again in this series. The way that I look at the keys of this series first is how does Miami pull the upset? Because my expectation is that Boston wins this series. Boston should win this series. They are in a different league in terms of talent, but we know what Miami is capable of, the areas in which they can out-execute you. And I think, although this is a very different series than that Miami-Milwaukee one, some of the same key blueprint elements apply because it's just how do you beat a team that is that much more talented than you and the first thing I look at is how soundly can Jimmy Butler outplay Jason Tatum because that's what you need first thing your best player to be better than the more talented team's best player and that's what we saw against the Bucks. but think about what it took for them to beat those Bucks in those last two games right Jimmy gets 56 he gets 42 in game five unbelievably clutch performances on top of all the other things that went wrong for the Bucks, like their late-game offensive meltdowns, their complete disadvantage in the coaching battle. And Jimmy has been the better player than Jason Tatum in these playoffs. I mean, 31 a night on 62% true shooting. Obviously, Tatum has had some awesome performances, but has been erratic, like has had some inexcusable stretches with his shot-making leaving him. But Jimmy's come back to earth a bit these last two games, and obviously Tatum just had a masterpiece. I do think that Jimmy is more reliable because of the ways in which he gets his buckets, his physicality, his ability to get to the line, the consistency of his two-way impact, also his reliable decision-making, and the pull-up jump shooting. I mean, there were insane moments against Milwaukee. It wasn't as insane against New York, and he was still able to be very effective because I just think he's a guy who gets to his spots quite consistently. Tatum, you're right, I mean... You have the O of 8, O of 6, O of 10 starts consecutively, and then you have the 51 piece. But the key difference to me in that game seven was that we saw him come out weaponizing his ability to get downhill, his size and athletic and physical advantages, because he's not going to be a consistently great pull-up jump shooter. Like, we know that. That's why he's capable of falling into these terrible lulls, because he settles consistently. And when you look at the shifts... In games four and games five were terrible first halves, but pretty good second halves. A lot of it was just him coming out and committing to getting to the rim, getting at least into that painted area. This one, he doesn't make a three until the last minute of the first half, but he is absolutely torching Philly out of pick and roll, driving, and a lot of it out of the post where you just saw, okay, great, I have De'Anthony Melton on me. Well, that's barbecue chicken. And he is so skilled out of there with his footwork and the size and strength advantages and his short make his, uh, shot-making ability from that mid-range area, which we have not seen him rely on as much throughout these playoffs, that's a really good version of Jason Tatum. And I do think Jimmy's going to be on him probably in this series. I think that's what they need to do, and that's not a particularly easy matchup to handle for Jason Tatum. But I think we need to get good Tatum, and again, there's always the possibility of him that his decision-making goes awry, right? If you throw traps at him, how does he handle that? Is he making the proper drive and kick reads? So that's key number one, I think. And then there's the collective just execution element, right? Between hustle, between decision-making, between coaching. That is where Miami 
thrives. If you look at the Milwaukee series, it's okay. Bud is still going to rigidly play this drop coverage. Jimmy's going to torch that. The other guards are going to torch that. Oh, you're going to overhelp with Giannis in that rover roll. Great. We're going to create open catch and shoot looks. And then offensively, right, there's going to be a bit of self-sabotage from Miami just excuse me, for Milwaukee, sticking rigidly to those Giannis post-ups, not getting good looks. And then we see the New York series, right? Spo just schooling Tibbs with the combination of zones and, and traps and all these different coverages that cause that offense to stagnate, loading up the paint and forcing them to beat with their spot-up shooting, which they couldn't do. And then it's everything you said about just the overall hustle and consistent intensity. We've seen Boston have lapses there. I mean, game one against Philly, Game four against Philly. Those should be Boston wins, but they're not because they come out lazy and disengaged, particularly on the defensive end of the floor, but also at times settling for pull-up threes and not you know, imposing themselves getting downhill on offense. So all these things are real, and they can swing games. It shouldn't swing a series, but it can swing games. And then I agree with you on the shooting ceiling, right? Miami was able to beat New York while having an off-shooting series because... New York just wasn't that much more talented and Julius Randle sucked and they couldn't, you know, make a perimeter shot and spoke completely out coach Tibbs, all these things coming together. But to beat the Bucks, they had to make over 15 threes a night on 45% from deep. And I think against a Boston team that is like, again, with a similar talent advantage to what Milwaukee had, you have to shoot the hell out of the ball. Kevin Love has got to be nails off the catch. Max Struess, Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, all these guys have got to really consistently make their looks from the perimeter and that's how you then unlock the ultimate offensive ceiling for Miami. It's really good Jimmy and really good shooting. Yeah, and on the other side of that, I think Miami is always going to be there in the hustle quotient. The one thing that really scares me about this Miami defense from other series is uh, the depth of good downhill creators that Boston does have because this is something that we thought that it was going to bite it was going to bite other teams. Uh, it was going to bite Miami on the tail uh, all these other matchups that we had. Because of the talent, uh, because of the talent area, right? We thought Milwaukee was going to be able to get downhill. I thought New York with RJ, with Brunson, with Randall, they were all going to be able to physically impose themselves on these Miami defenders. This is the one matchup where I really do think it matters because you're not taking on Julius Randall, who can settle for that step back jumper, for RJ Barrett, who doesn't have the tightest handle, doesn't really want the ball in his hands, doesn't really want to get downhill as much. You've got really dependable guards throughout this Boston roster that I just think physically outmatch and are more talented than the Miami defenders. Shout out Max Strus, shout out Gabe Vincent, shout out Kyle Lowry for what they've been able to do uh, up to here. Look, man, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, though. I don't think any of these guys are great defenders at this at their point in their careers. I don't think Vincent and Strus are good defenders point blank. I think Lowry can be game to game, uh, but... They're not great lockdown defenders. I think Boston has the size advantage there, has the just the creation ability. Smart can get downhill. Brogdon is really good at getting downhill. Derek White, when he wants to, can get downhill. And if you get these switches, that's the real area that I think about too, is with screening and stuff like that, um, especially if you're running that Horford, White, Smart, Tatum, Brown lineup. If you get switches off of screens where you can attack Tatum on Vincent, Tatum on Strews, Tatum on Lowry, Brown on any of those guys. I think that's really where Boston holds a real distinct advantage. And like I said, even when you're not getting those switches, when you get it to Brogdon, to White, uh, or to uh, Marcus Smart, like any three of those guys, I think, hold physical advantages over the Miami guards. Like, I think that Miami is going to hustle hard. They are going to fly around the court like they always do. But I just think schematically straight up, I think they are at a defensive uh, disadvantage taking on the wealth of creators Boston has. You know, it's something, like I said, that we expected to bite them in the New York series and the Milwaukee one. This is one where I really think it matters. Again, because Boston has these wealth of creators that you get one switch, and it's a really good matchup for Boston. So I think that's huge. And I don't really know if Miami has an answer for it. I just don't think they have a wealth of impactful defenders, uh, perimeter or interior. You've got Jimmy and you've got Bam, but those are your really only pluses defensively. And how do you take away the drive and kick game? Mm -hmm. I just think it's very difficult. And on the other side of the ball, you talk about Boston's ability to attack mismatches with those switches. Miami is not going to be able to create mismatches offensively with Boston switching scheme. And I think that's a huge thing is we've seen Miami create more offense out of pick and roll 
than any other team in these playoffs. Between pick-and-roll ball handlers, pick-and-roll roll men, they're creating 34.6 points per game. That's number one out of the playoff field. But a lot of that has been against drop coverage. And a lot of that has been, okay, well, Gabe Vincent, Kyle Lowry, these guys can actually get pretty good looks off of drop coverage as mm -hmm. just good pull-up shooters with plenty of room to pull. A team that is limited athletically, that doesn't have a lot of those big, aggressive downhill guys but can shoot the hell out of the ball, that's good for them. Boston's going to be switching everything. Because every one of their guys can guard every one of Milwaukee of Miami's guys, basically. Like, you're just not going to have those same opportunities kind of handed to these perimeter ball handlers. And when you get a Tatum onto Gabe Vincent switch, like, that's advantage Boston still. So that's where I do think the talent advantage here is evident. And I just ultimately would feel foolish trying to pick any other Miami advantage to overcome that like there's a different depth of creators there is a really high shooting ceiling here these two top wings can dominate and uh, the overall defensive ceiling that Boston has with their personnel is so high I would be tempted to pick Boston in five I'm not going to do that because I can't to Miami after all the overachievement that we've seen from them and I don't even know if you can call it overachievement overachieving talent but it's just kind of what they do but I am going to go Boston in six they're just that much more talented. And I don't think that they have weaknesses that Miami can pinpoint in the same way. Like, yeah, they do have self-inflicted wounds often, but most of that is truly self-imposed. And if they are in a spot where they approach this series with the appropriate intensity, and maybe this Philly series was the swift kick in the ass they needed to dial in a bit more, then I think they should get out of here in six. Yeah, I... I... Swift kick in the ass is good. I don't know if you can give Boston a swift kick in the ass. I don't know if they receive. We need to pull Red Foreman out from that 70s show to give them one uh, to make sure that they're fully woke up. I'm, I know that Boston is still prone to lapses in effort, in game-to-game, night-to-night, showing up. That's a real factor to me. I'm hoping that this was the wake-up, the bell ringing for them uh to get them ready for the rest of these playoffs it should have have been gone off but i'm gonna go boston in seven I, there's still something that i think boston has the massive talent advantage and if we were looking at this everybody shows up every night we get the best two versions of these teams every single night i would take boston in five but i know boston i know boston a little too well to expect that they're just going to handle business straight up like we expect them to and i know miami too well to expect them to just lay down and roll over like a dog and give them this series so i think miami's hustle and grit is going to pull them out an extra two games in this one and they're going to force it seven i think jimmy is going to turn it up a couple games but ultimately i do expect boston to pull this out but i'm not going to underestimate miami in the games department again i think it goes seven and uh, I'm still going to pick Boston. Uh, I do think flat out they are just the, the better team. And I don't think there's a lot you can do, like you said, to exploit anything that they do poorly. Again, I think Boston's biggest enemy is themselves. Every single night, Boston's biggest enemy is their bad tendencies, their bad decision-making, their lulls, their effort. And that's all on Boston. If Boston plays their best basketball, this shouldn't be a series. Now, like I said, I don't expect that consistently, so give me a mid-seven, but... Uh, I'm not just going to wipe away all of Boston's uh, shortcomings in these playoffs. Neither am I. That's why I'm going six. Like, if I thought this Boston team was going to throw their best punch every game, I would probably take Boston in four, dude. I mean, they are, like, that talented. But their tendencies are very real, and that does matter. I just think you need superhuman Jimmy, mm -hmm. superhuman shooting. You need to really clearly win the execution, hustle, coaching battles and all that coming together it just feels like a bit too much like this isn't the Knicks right I mean this team is really really specially talented if you love sports and true crime then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me Jay Harris that you won't want to miss playing dirty sports scandals each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever I'm talking Marcus Dixon Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, 
You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about the other conference final series, Logan. Nuggets, Lakers... We touched on this briefly last pod, some of our gut feelings, but what are some of the keys that stand out to you in this one? Uh, like we mentioned on last episode, if you guys watched, uh, this is a premier battle of offense and defense, something that we have been looking forward to uh, you know, since we got this matchup. Number one offense in basketball, uh, the Denver Nuggets in these playoffs, an offensive rating of over 118 against the LA Lakers, who I believe have a defensive rating of like 107 uh, in these playoffs. It's insane. I mean, it's... It's it's awesome. This is what we're waiting. This is what we waited for. Best offense versus best defense. Jokic, the best offensive player on the planet, at basically a thirty-one point triple double on insane efficiency in these playoffs. Anthony Davis playing the best defensive basketball of anybody I've seen in a long time. I think that's huge. I think that's massive. What we get out of those two. And again, Anthony Davis has been one of the only guys who's really been able to slow down Nikola Jokic. Twenty-one points in their head-to-head matchups. And again, I noted. Uh, only five assists, too. Like, he's really slowed down Jokic. That's one playoff run, too, that was pretty poor. Those include regular season matchups. Uh, I think if Jokic has a better shooting run than he did against Davis, like I mentioned last show, I think that's a big thing if Jokic's jump shot is falling. I have no issue, though. I think it's going to be falling. He's at over 40% from deep. He's at over 50% on jump shots in these playoffs. Like, I just expect his jumper and touch shots to fall. So I think that's obviously the biggest matchup. The number one offensive player in basketball versus the number one defensive player in basketball. I think the next thing is what you pointed out earlier in the show, Carson, is are we going to get superstar LeBron James? We've been talking about that all playoffs long. But this was the most encouraging that we've seen LeBron in these uh, these playoffs. Uh, This last game against Golden State, controlling the uh, game, taking... Uh, mismatches, getting Curry and Clay switched onto him. And that's what I want to see from LeBron in this series. Uh, not that there's a lot of mismatches that I think he can attack, because I think the Nuggets have really good perimeter defense and guards with size, too, right? Even if you're getting a Jamal Murray switched onto you, that's still a 6'4", 6'5", guy that's going to be physical. KCP, a 6'5", good, strong wing. Bruce Brown, 6'5", good and strong. I want to see LeBron attack those mismatches, but they're not as... Uh, there's not as much disparity between the Warriors' uh, mismatches that he would get. The Pools, the Currys, the Clay Thompsons. But I want to see him go to the post. I want to see him garner more attention, see if he can get guys to slide off of him, be physical, get into the low block, get downhill. 16 points in the paint in that last game, 6 points in transition. It's the best we've seen LeBron and the most engaged we've seen LeBron. And I want to see that version of him. And I think he, there are mismatches that he can really attack too. Even MPJ, if he gets that switch in this series, I want to see him consciously attack those, go on the low block, because that is where LeBron is at his best, and we need to see if the 
if the jumper is going to fall too, of course. Um, but I do think the Lakers hold one more distinct advantage that I'll point out over Denver. Um, one, I think the cumulative defense is one of them, the defensive ceiling that I expect from this team. But I do think there's more creation down the depth of this Lakers roster, Carson. Like, there are guys that I love Jamal, and superstar Jamal is the best perimeter creator that we have uh, on the court, right? But there's just a different level of depth of creators, I think, outside of, like, Jamal. Um, guys who can actually create with the ball in their hands. Again, there's one guy can have an off night for L.A., but you have Schroeder, you have Reeves, you have Hachimura, all who can have a big night. Um, D'Lo, like, they can all have a big night, and I think that's the one advantage that I would give L.A. over Denver distinctly is that I think they have more creators that you can turn to night to night. Not that I expect Denver's players to disappear. You know what I mean? They have a consistent formula, a consistent identity, but night to night, if MPJ has a cold night, right, if Jamal has a cold night, I just think there are more guys that uh, that – L.A. can rely on the Denver down the roster. That's interesting. I think that there are more creators in L.A. I don't necessarily know that there are more offensive weapons, though, when you mm -hmm. consider the pure shooting that you get from MPJ, KCP, the rim finishing that you get from Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown's versatility. Like, Denver's the best offense in the league for a reason. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, that a lot of this comes down to do you think that Anthony Davis can limit Nikola Jokic? Because if the answer is yes, I think you should absolutely pick the Lakers. I'm just not sure that he can. And you give those head-to-head -head numbers, what I'll say is Jokic was obviously great by the bubble run, right? And then he took a significant leap for his first MVP season. And then he took another leap as a scorer for his second MVP season. And he's just continued to get better and better. And in their last five head-to-head matchups, he's been 30-13-7, from the field, even while having off-shooting nights from deep, only 16% in those head-to-head -head games. So I just don't value that track record as much. I want to look at, okay, how do these guys match up presently? And... I do think that AD is like the closest thing for an answer to Jokic in the world. But all I will say is throughout these playoffs, right? If you look at the sort of one-on-one -on -one defenders who Jokic has been facing, Rudy Gobert, a three-time defensive player of the year, who sure, one-on-one -on -one defense has never been his strength, right? It has been the dominant rim protection, his value as a team defender, but nevertheless considered a very good one-on-one -on -one defender, and Jokic dominated him so thoroughly that they started putting Cat on him to have Gobert in help. And then DeAndre Ayton was supposed to be a good option, right? A big physical guy with tons of length, and Jokic absolutely ate him alive. And AD is in a different tier, right? But as I've said before, there is stuff with Jokic that I don't know how you take away. When a guy is 280 pounds and all he has to do is just touch the ball in the post and he can make a hook with 65% efficiency. I mean, that's literally what he shot in the regular season on hooks. Like, yeah, AD's length can matter a bit there, but I don't know that it matters a ton. He just faced two guys with insane, literally historic wingspans, and they couldn't affect those shots. And AD's not going to be able to keep him from getting to his spots because Jokic is significantly stronger. And then you look at out a pick and roll, he's going to still be getting those floater looks, which he can also hit with near 70% efficiency is what he did in this regular season. And AD, also one-on-one -on -one defense, very, very good. Not his greatest strength. Like AD's best ability, I think, is how well he can guard the pick and roll, his defensive versatility, and his rim protection, his defensive playmaking, his ability to affect passing lanes with his great hands and all that. So I just don't know that he's really making Jokic uncomfortable in a one-on-one -on -one context. And then, again, the more he has to be singularly devoted to Jokic, which he will, he cannot leave Jokic for those 12-foot floaters, like that's just suicide, the less of an impact he can have as that dominant team defender. So I think Jokic wins that matchup, and that is definitely huge to informing how I view this series. But the other thing that I think is key is how consistently can AD assert himself offensively and go at Jokic, because as dominant as AD has been defensively, and I think his sheer defensive dominance is enough to put him in like the top five player alive conversation. It's one of the best individual defensive runs that I can recall seeing. He has gone up and down offensively in terms of his assertiveness, in terms of his skilled shot making, and he's only averaging 21 a game in these playoffs accordingly. But how much can he expose Jokic vertically, right, as the great lob threat that we know that he can be? 
How physical can he be? I don't know that he's going through Jokic a ton, and it's not like Jokic is going to be an easy guy for him to exploit out of the post because there he's going to rely on his skilled shot making. Jokic is at the very least a big guy. They're not easy to move off his spots or anything. So I do think a lot of this is going to come down to him getting good looks out of pick and roll and just being consistently aggressive and making Jokic work on that end of the floor, trying to wear him down, trying to get him into foul trouble. I think that's a key. And I do think that LeBron, obviously, I mean, how aggressive is he? How much does he assert himself? What role do we see him in? Is it going to be primarily off-ball LeBron? Are we going to see more point LeBron? But I think more than anything, in that off-ball versus on-ball conversation, is do we get jump-shooting LeBron? Do we get downhill LeBron? Because in this playoff run, 26% of his shots are coming at the rim inside of three feet. That is a career low. That is compared to 39% in the bubble run while he's relying on the three ball more than ever in his playoff career. So I want to see more of that LeBron AD pick and roll, right? Because then you can go at Jokic, challenges him as a rim protector, or you can try to find AD with those lobs. I think that is a problematic action for the Nuggets to guard. And I also want to see more of LeBron attacking out of the post. Like you said, I think Aaron Gordon is actually a good matchup for him. I mean, that's a long, big, physical guy, but it's still LeBron. LeBron, with his physicality, with his post-shot making, with his post-playmaking, not an easy cover for anyone. A problematic matchup no matter what. And aggressive LeBron also just makes them less dependent on these guards. And I have praised these guards. I think they are a key difference maker, a reason that this team has a title ceiling, a massive difference from the bubble, a big reason that LeBron has been able to hold back a bit, not have to go 100% in every game. But... They are inconsistent, and how well they play is a key in wins in this playoff run. D'Lo has been over 18 tonight on 57.5% true shooting. Austin Reeves has been 17 tonight on 62% true shooting. In losses, D'Lo has been 10 points per game on 45% true shooting. River, uh, Reeves has been under 13 points per game on 48% true shooting. So they are still relying on that pull-up jump shooting, especially D'Lo, and sometimes that's just going to leave him. And I don't think you want to be in a spot where those guys are dictating possession after possession and they're off. Like, that's where in this series, LeBron has just got to go. He's got to take over. He can't pick his spots like that because I think Denver's significantly better than Golden State. I mean, Memphis, listen, is not even belonging in this conversation. But I don't know that you're getting away with the inconsistency and effort overall that the Lakers have at times in this playoff run and the inconsistency and hyper-aggressive LeBron. Because this is the best offense in the league with, in my opinion, the best player in the league and certainly the best offensive player in the league. So all of those stand out to me. And then one more thing is how pronounced is the shooting discrepancy in this series? Denver is one of the best shooting teams in the league. 39% from three in these playoffs were consistently in the regular season at the top of the league in terms of three-point efficiency. And we talk about... I mean, consistently, everybody on the floor for them can shoot the ball. Like Aaron Gordon, maybe it's not his preference, but he can knock him down. Jokic has been unconscious in this playoff run. And then you have MPJ, Jamal Murray, and KCP. Lethal, lethal shooters of the basketball. Whereas LA is always going to be more reliant on getting downhill, that physicality, and they have guys who you know, aren't afraid to take their shots from deep. But they're 31% from three in this playoff run, and they don't have many truly great shooters. So I think that they need to be competitive in that arena because Denver can be great there. And again, there's just a level of offensive, consistent dominance from Denver that you're getting that you weren't getting from the Warriors, where they were so singularly reliant on Steph and they didn't have the kind of shot making around him that Denver does with Jokic. Again, I'm not going to acknowledge Memphis in this conversation. They were a deeply, deeply flawed team. So I am so conflicted on this series because I've been such an LA believer. I mean, Logan, you and I, before the playoffs, we took him to the conference finals. It's hilarious to me. The two takes that I had that upset people most were LA to the conference finals and then beat at eight in my playoff rankings. Look at me now, boy. <laughs> A couple of home runs. Think outside the box. But I do think that there's a level of offensive dominance from this Denver team that it would be really tough for anybody to take away. And there's still inconsistencies with LA offensively that could come back to bite them. And Denver has home court where they've been 37-4 and four when Jokic plays, and it's one of the few home courts in the field that I think really matters and is like the most important in my eyes. So I think I'm still going Denver in seven. Are there any other keys that stand out for you? I mean, what's your ultimate feel on what's going to happen here? 
I'm going to take the Lakers in seven, but I think that is the biggest key, Carson, is the offensive consistency that we get from L.A. That's the big advantage that Denver has had over any of these teams in these playoffs that we have noted throughout, that they are an offensive, the best offense in basketball that never stops coming. With Nikola Jokic on the court, there's always something. If it's him taking over as a scorer, if he's setting up all of these great spot-up shooters, the offense never stops attacking. And with the level of Jamal Murray that we have gotten in these playoffs, it just makes Denver's offensive attack so much more consistent than L.A.'s, and I think that's what you have to be concerned about. I like, I honestly like both of the pick and rolls in this uh, in this series, and I think that's big, right? Against Jokic, you've got guys where if Jokic is running drop, Schroeder, Reeves, and D'Lo are going to have to eat in that mid-range area because Jokic, the way AD is going to have to stay attached to Jokic, and Murray should be able to eat out of the pick and roll, Jokic is going to have to stay attached to uh, AD because if he doesn't, that's an easy back door every time, or you know they're just going vert over Jokic's head. And so I think that, yeah, there's a big burden on L.A.'s guards to be great. And I also think that's the thing too, Carson, is uh, I think L.A. has to continue being aggressive at attacking the paint and attacking Jokic. And he's not a great vertical athlete, and that's one advantage that if LeBron is aggressive, he can, if he can get by his guys, or if you're even going pick-and-roll action with him and A.D., I think LeBron holds a distinct aggressive advantage and physicality advantage over Jokic where he can still still finish over him. And that's a big difference, too, is just Jokic being in the paint. And that's what I think the Lakers have to attack. Uh, the Nuggets have been great, or excuse me, the Lakers have been great at taking it away. I think it's a really interesting matchup. Uh, the Nuggets have made uh, 57% of their shots inside the paint in these playoffs, taking its uh, 53% of its shots inside the paint. That's the highest frequency in these playoffs. And the Lakers are allowing teams to shoot just 51%. That's the second lowest in the paint. And they only shoot 48% with AD on the floor. This is a Nuggets offense that is great finishing downhill. It'll be interesting to see if AD can take that away. But for LA, because again, I think Denver's offense is going to be consistent. I love this Lakers defense. I don't think they're going to stop coming. I think the Lakers offense has to has to attack the paint downhill with LeBron and AD, and I think their guards have to be great in the mid-range consistently. And, yeah, I think you're right, too. I think they have to shoot well. I don't know what it is, man. I, I think Denver I think Denver can get it done, but there's something, man. I'm just leaning. I'm leaning L.A. in seven, man. I think – I don't know, man. There's something about LeBron. I just I, – I think LeBron – we've only seen one game of it, and that's why it's so hard to bet on that LeBron's going to crank it up. But it's one series – and he, this is the most rested we've seen LeBron in a playoff run. And yes, game to game, there are issues that I have with him being consistent. But I think we get a really good LeBron series where he turns back the clock a little bit and gets this team over the hump. If he's going to turn it up for one series, now's the time to do it. And I, I trust LeBron, I think, to, to turn this team up and to get it done. I, again, we haven't seen it in this playoff run, so I'm not banking on eye test. But there's a faith in LeBron thing here, and so I'm going to go Lakers in seven. Absolutely. The Lakers, I still believe, can reach a higher ceiling. And I think the key is, as you mentioned, as I mentioned, consistent downhill aggression and highly assertive offensively LeBron and AD. And if those guys are their best, then yeah, I think that LA does win this series. But the key thing that I do think about is how do you take Denver away? Because you mentioned those paint defense stats from LA. That's facing entirely different kind of offenses trying to get downhill, largely offenses that are dictated by perimeter players trying to create looks either for themselves or others at the rim. Jokic doesn't have to get to the rim, right? He is going to kill you with the paint touch shot making. And if you have AD really attached to him, then you are going to open up opportunities for those cutters, which is so fundamental to the Nuggets offense, always creating great looks for guys around them. LA is also not going to be able to play their best defensive personnel in this series because I think as we saw Vando get played off the floor against Golden State, I think that same thing happens here. I think that they would just leave him. And yeah, they still have good defensive guards. Like obviously Schroeder can come in and do a fine job on Jamal Murray. But you are taking away another potential piece in that arsenal. And Jamal has been so great. Like when he's 26 a night and is playmaking well and is unbelievably lethal from deep 40%, that is the level of star perimeter creator that they need alongside Nikola Jokic. And I don't think that they're going to take that away. So it feels incredibly difficult, I think, We'll see what level Boston can reach, but like 
we definitely have the three teams that have felt title caliber throughout this playoff run here. No disrespect to the Heat. I do not feel that way about them. But LA and Denver, this is how it was meant to be. This is how it is. Best offense, best defense, best offensive player, best defensive player. LeBron freaking James. Awesome offensive supporting cast. It's going to be really, really fun to see it all play out. So there you have it, guys, our predictions, and that's going to do it for us here today. So if you enjoyed the show, you can find us on YouTube, the volume YouTube page. You can also listen to the pod across audio platforms. You can follow us on social media, Instagram at NerdSesh. TikTok is the same handle. That's where we're the most prolific, most consistent, and Twitter at nerd underscore sesh. You can also join our Discord at the link in our bio anywhere, our link tree just to talk ball with us really at any time. So as always, appreciate you guys. I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.